Again, welcome. So glad that you are here with us on this second Sunday of Advent as we get closer and closer uh, to the celebration of the birth of our, of our Savior. Uh, my name is Nathan, um, the campus pastor here, and it's just great to be able to gather together, to worship together, and to proclaim the truth of his word together. Well, as we do that, why don't I uh, pray for us as we look at this text? God, we need uh, you to speak to us. And God, so as we open these ancient words written so long ago, we pray that they would continue to speak through your Holy Spirit in each of our lives. God, I pray that we would hear the things that we need to hear. God, where we need comfort, that you would bring comfort. Where we need encouragement, that you'd bring encouragement. And God, where we need rebuke, um, that you would bring rebuke. So teach us now, we pray, for the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, I never knew how much I love this seemingly insignificant detail about life. Um, how my, both, both the, re, the reality of it and my belief in it truly changes everything about how I do everything. And, and, and maybe this is, this is obvious for some of you, but for me, I just discovered how much I love gravity. Seriously. I mean, have you, have you seen this movie, right? Gravity? Um, it's intense. I don't, I don't think I breathed for 90 minutes. There, there was one point in the movie theater where I actually had to restrain myself from trying to like grab onto the satellite as I, you know, floated off to my death kind of thing. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a terrifying experience thinking about this. And what, what amazed me most, I think, about this movie was the villain. The terrible, horrible, scary villain. It wasn't an alien or a monster. It was just a simple lack of gravity. I mean, this one little thing that we all take for granted. And the fear that with one wrong move, being propelled out into the black with no hope of recovery. Right? I mean, it's just, it's a terrifying thought. And what I find so interesting about this thing called gravity is that every person who has ever believed, who has ever lived, has believed in gravity, right? Long before Isaac Newton discovered it. We all believe it. We all believe that what goes up must come down. And it would be very easy for any of us to, to prove that we believe in that. It's not hard at all. I mean, it's why you were cautious this morning when you walked across, you know, on, on the ice, right? Because you don't want to fall. You believe in gravity. It's, it, it's why uh, when you jump, right, you're not, you're not afraid you're going to just sort of float off, which would, you know, make for a really short but kind of amusing basketball game, right? Just people sort of floating away. Um, it's, it's why we don't walk off buildings or, or cliffs. If I asked you to prove your belief in gravity, it would be a cakewalk, Right? Yay, gravity. And yet what James, in the passage we we just heard, is asking us to prove is so much more important and so much more difficult. James looks boldly at his readers and says, "So, so you're a Christian, huh? Well, then prove it. Prove it. Prove that you believe. Prove that your faith 
is genuine. Could you, could you prove it? I mean, if, if James was standing right here this morning, right, and looked you dead in the eyes and said, prove to me that you are a follower of Jesus, could you? And what, what would you point to, right? What kind of thing? Well, I'm, I'm here, aren't I, at church, right? Isn't, isn't that enough? Or, or maybe you look back, well, I, I prayed this prayer when I was, when I was younger. I mean, it's got it's to count for something. Or, or I, I believe, right? I mean, I, I guess. Isn't, isn't that enough? Nope. Not, not for James, anyway. James wants proof. He's like a hard-nosed lawyer, hungry for concrete evidence. I mean, you see, my, my faith in gravity changes every movement that I make. How does your faith in Jesus change you? And for James, if you can't prove it, well, too bad for you. Just sort of out of luck. And if you're, if you're here this morning and you're, you're listening as a non-Christian, so you're not a, you're not a follower of Jesus, you're here maybe checking out faith, or maybe you're with someone who's a, who's a Christian, but if that describes you, when I say that, it's probably like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, if you believe something, right, if a Christian claims to believe something, they, they ought to live it out, right? It's what we often as, as Christians get, get accused of, right, that we're just, we're just hypocrites, and so you get that if you're kind of an outsider looking in. But for the, those of us who are sort of insiders, we come to this and we think, eh, eh, really? Is it really that important? I mean, who does this James guy think he is anyway? Well, we're in message 49 and this year-long trek through the whole Bible, right? Almost to the end. And these last several weeks, we've been focusing in on, okay, if this is who Jesus is, if this is the story that God has been telling for, for all, of, all of Scripture, what does it mean then to live out this life, right? To, to, to follow this Jesus that we claim to believe in. How do we do it? And this morning, we're with James. So who is he? Well, this isn't the James who was one of the original 12 disciples, okay? That was a different guy. James and Andrew, John, you know, that was different. Um, this particular James, the one who's writing, he didn't become a follower of Jesus until after the resurrection, a, a, bit, a bit later. Uh, but he ends up becoming the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which is a pretty big deal back then. Another interesting fact about James, this James, is that he was the half-brother of Jesus, so Jesus and James had the same mom, Mary. Now, if you come from a, a, a Catholic background, that, what I just said sounds like absolute heresy, right? Because uh, Catholics teach that, that Mary was, was always a virgin. She never had any, any additional children. But there's, there's good scriptural evidence, Mark 6.33 and lots of other places, as well as church history that seem to say, no, actually Mary had, probably had several children. Jesus was the oldest and James was one of them. Just imagine growing up in the same household with Jesus. He's your big brother. I mean, have you ever felt overshadowed by your big brother? Right? Um, you, you know, your big brother, he's just always so perfect, right? 
I mean, imagine what this would be like. But what I think is so interesting about James's story is that he didn't become a Christian, a follower of his brothers, until after the resurrection. Which, in my opinion, is another one of those sort of strong evidences that the resurrection actually happened. Because think about it. For you to suddenly start referring to your, your brother as God, something massive would have had to have happened. And James grew up in the intimacy as brothers with Jesus all that time. And he ends up submitting to his brother as the savior of the world. I mean, that's, that's got to say something, right? For that, that kind of thing to happen. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes this letter to the Jewish Christians scattered about and he's writing in the, the early to mid-40s A.D., so about a decade after the, the resurrection. Uh, and James was murdered for being a follower of Jesus in the early 60s. Now, this is important, okay? And hold, hold this thought for a second, because this means that James is writing before the Apostle Paul, okay? Um, and that'll become important in a little bit later uh, when we kind of discuss Paul and James's use of the word justification. And so so we'll, we'll get to that. But James, in this letter, he's describing what true faith looks like. I mean, that's his whole purpose of of writing these few chapters. What does it look like to have faith in this Jesus, to be a a Christian, to to be a follower of his? And he's, he's a bit forceful in the way he does it. Frankly, maybe even a little bit antagonistic. And so if at some point, you know, you begin thinking, what's wrong with Nathan? Like, good grief, just like... Lay off a little bit. Well, don't shoot the messenger, okay? Um, James comes across as fairly harsh. And the last thing we want to do is water down his message. But he shoots straight with us, okay? Well, let's get to it. Chapter 2, 14, verse 14 is where we're going to begin this morning. Uh, which is really the, the crux of his argument there, of what this true faith looks like. And in verse 14, he asks a massive question. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Essentially, he's asking the question, is your faith real if you can't prove it? Is your faith, your belief, real if you can't prove that you have it? What do you think? What what does James say? Well, he describes that faith really with four main ideas. He says that kind of faith, kind of if you can even call it that, is ridiculous. It's useless. It's incomplete. And it's dead. So in short... He says, not a chance. You've got to be able to prove it. You've got to be, there's got to be evidence in your life for it to be true. And before anybody gets up and walks out, let's take a look a little more closely at what he has to say. Let's look at these answers. So answer, answer one here, he basically says, that's, that's ridiculous. The very idea, it doesn't make any sense. It's like this, and James describes this in verse 15. He says, imagine, so this idea of faith living apart from works, it's like this. Imagine someone, 
Okay, someone you know. He says it's a brother or sister in Christ. So it's somebody here at church with you. Somebody that you have a relationship with uh, who is a brother and sister uh, in Christ. It, maybe it's somebody in your community group. Maybe it's, it's the person sitting in front of you or family. I mean, look at them, right? Think about it. It's them. And after the service this morning, they turn to you and they say, oh, I just don't know what I'm going to do. We don't have enough food to eat. My kids are hungry. It's really cold outside, and they've outgrown their coats. I don't know what I'm going to do. Meanwhile, you've got plenty of food, you know, maybe a little, a little too much, right? You've got extra coats, right? There was that great sale last year, and you picked up a few, and you have that. And so you turn to that person with all compassion, right? So it seems. And you say, man, I just I can't imagine what that's like. I, I can't imagine watching my kids hungry and, man, you're right, it has gotten really stinking cold out. Well, all right, best of luck to you. And, and then to even say something, this is what James is saying, may, may God, you say this to the person, may God fill your tummies and may God keep your children warm. And then you walk away. Anybody else want to punch that person? Right? It's ridiculous. I, I mean, the very idea of treating another person like that is abs- it's just unthinkable. It's appalling. Frankly, it's insulting. I'll pray for you when you have the means to be the answer to that prayer yourself. It's disgusting. And James is saying that's what faith without works is. That's what faith you can't prove is. It is ridiculous. It is empty. Faith? You call that faith? Hell will be full of people with that kind of faith. Or even just think about the Christmas story. Right here, the second Sunday of Advent. Imagine that whole host of, of angels appearing to the shepherds, singing glory to God in the highest, right? And, and here they, they know now that their long-awaited Messiah, Redeemer, has come. He's, he's been born just down the street. And the angels depart, and the shepherds say, hey, that's neat. I think it's time for bed. Right? It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, the very thought of, it's, just, it's ridiculous. Belief, true belief changes you. It can't not change you. It, it has to change you. True faith does something. And if you can't prove it, your so-called faith is ridiculous. And it will not save you. Anybody mad yet? Okay, all right, we're good. James is just getting warmed up. Answer number two. So if I can't prove my faith is genuine, then, then what is it? It's useless. Useless. Yeah, but come on. Nathan, I, I don't really want to change. I mean, can't I just sort of believe? Isn't that good enough? Well, don't ask me. Ask James. He says that kind of faith is useless. It doesn't accomplish a single thing. True belief will change you. And and listen here, because I I want it to be very clear. I'm going to say this multiple times together this morning. Being changed does not save you. No amount of good works could possibly save you. Ever. 
Only belief, belief can say faith alone, but true faith, true faith is never alone. Never alone. And go back to this idea of gravity, right? I believe in gravity. I could take a test of the fine points of Newton's law. I could make a list of everything that if it goes up, must come down. I could do this, preach the sermon of gravity, right? And then walk up to the top of the church. You know, all of you there, do a little wave, Shout out one last time my declaration of faith. I believe in gravity, but I'm going to be okay. And walk right off. How useful is my belief in gravity at that moment? What do you think? Splat. Not very, right? Not a bit. I mean, I, I could say that I believe in gravity, but obviously I don't, right? Because nobody in their right mind who believes in gravity, who wants to live, would jump off of a building. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's useless. And no one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who came to offer redemption and life, the one who is the judge of all things, no one puts their faith in him and then lives the rest of their life as if he barely even exists. It's useless. We try to do that. But that faith is useless and it will not save you. But again, don't take my word for it. Let's look at James. And come on, James, I believe. Verse 19. You believe that God is one. Well, good for you. I mean, the sarcasm there is thick, right? I told you James was snarky. I mean, he's, he's giving it to him. Good for you, you believe. Way to go, guys. Even the demons believe, he says. And they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith, apart from works, is useless? Come on, though. Isn't my belief enough? I believe. They, the demons believe. And I don't, know, I don't know all that much about demons, but I know that they're, like, on the wrong side, right? They're, they're, they're the, like, the worst of the worst. And even they believe, and frankly, they probably have better theology than any of us, right? They know who God is and why he came probably better than any of us. They believe, and they shudder. And here's James' point. The demons aren't Christians. It doesn't work that way. You've got to be able to prove it. If you think that you're a Christian because you can sign a doctrinal statement or because you prayed some prayer when you were a child that has really, in hindsight, made next to zero impact in your life whatsoever, James says you're deluded. The faith that saves you is the same faith that changes you. Yes, we are saved by faith alone period. Our works can never save us. That's a hill I will die on. But that faith never travels alone. Faith without proof is useless. Still with me? Okay. It's two out of four. Halfway. All right. Answer number three. Disingenuine faith is not only ridiculous and useless, it's incomplete. 
Even in, in the Old Testament, right, if we were to, to look back there, the language, the very language of belief and behavior of, of our faith and our works was inseparable. I mean, the language was, it was unthinkable to even try to imagine how you could believe something and not live according to it. I mean, faith and works were always two sides of the same coin. And a faith you cannot prove is as incomplete as a one-sided coin. Okay, and just like think about that for a minute, right? I just blew your mind. Like a one-sided coin? It's, it's not possible. It's sort of like saying, I'll accept Jesus as my Savior, but not as my Lord. Right? Um, I mean, I want to go to heaven when I die, right? Who doesn't? But God help me, I'm not going to follow him. Right? Dallas Willard refers to these folks as vampire Christians. This is for all you Twilight fans out there. Vampire Christians because they only want Jesus for his blood. Save me. But God forbid, don't change me. That's often how we approach it, isn't it? Do you see how incomplete that is? You can't pick. Jesus is Jesus. You don't don't get to pick and choose, right? He's a person, not an ideal. And when you accept a person, you get the person. Even the things that you don't like. I mean, it'd be sort of like saying to your wife on your wedding day, uh, saying to her, honey, I will marry you for the sex, but not for the intimacy. Yeah, how's that working out, right? I, it's, it's not even possible to even think, like, how could you do that? And honestly, if, if your goal is to get one without the other, well, you're not getting either, right? And husbands, some of you, that is exactly how you've approached your marriage. And if you haven't realized it yet, let me just tell you, you're dumb, Okay? And if you approach Jesus this way, you're not just dumb, you're lost forever. I mean, look at, the, look at the example that James gives in verse 21. He says, was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed. There's that word, completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. I got to stop there for a sec. Because at face value, if you're familiar with with your Bibles, uh, this is a direct contradiction, right? Of like what Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, pretty much everywhere else, okay? Um, For example, Romans 3.28. We can kind of even even compare these two up here. Uh, Paul writes, for we hold that one is justified apart from, from, one is justified by faith apart from works. Okay, if you compare those, um, man, it seems like a contradiction, right? And we, you know, we say that the Bible is, you know, doesn't contradict itself, and that, you know, how do, we, how do we deal with that? How does it fit together? Well, it's all about how they're using the word justified. Um, for some of us, when we, when we hear that word justified, we immediately hear Paul's definition of that word. Paul uses it almost invariably as to be declared righteous, that, that we are, God looks at us through Jesus if, if we have faith in him and he declares us righteous. It's something God does on our behalf. He says it, it's done. That's how Paul uses it. And we are absolutely declared righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by any works that we could possibly do. But remember, James is writing before Paul shaped that theological term. And just like most words in English, words in Greek 
can be used in different ways in different contexts, right? We use different words and they mean different things based on the situation. And the Greek word, and even the English word for that matter, justify, can also mean to prove righteous or to show as righteous. Another, way, another example of that in the New Testament is in, in Luke 7.35. And even if we were to like unpack the timing of Abraham's story, and, and James points to it, he says, Abraham believed God. In verse 23, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. That was the beginning of Abraham's story. That was before circumcision. It was before the sacrifice. And so even James, you can see it in the writing, he's not saying that this is the moment that, that Abraham was declared righteous. It's the moment that it was, he was proven righteous once again before God when he offered his son on the altar. So, so they're, they're not in conflict here. Um, Paul is saying, says all over the place, that we're declared righteous by faith alone. And James is saying that we're proven righteous, or we're shown to be righteous by the works that we do. It's kind of like the, the works are the justification for our justification. It's not the basis of our faith, but the proof of our faith. And so they're just using these, this word very differently in different contexts. And so the proof of Abraham's faith for James was his willingness to give up his son. And the proof of Rahab's faith, the other example he gives, was her willingness to side with God's people rather than with her own. What James is getting at is he wants us to ask, well, what's, what's the proof of my faith? I mean, that's Abraham, that's, that's Rahab, but, but what about me? If Jesus died for your sins, if he rose again for your life, if you, if you have been declared righteous by God himself... Improve it. And answer number four. And this is a summary of all that James has been saying. A faith you cannot prove is dead. And it leads to nothing but death. I mean, for example, uh, we hosted a tragic funeral here this past Friday. It was just terrible. Um, young man, husband, father, uh, he was killed in a motorcycle accident in Olathe over the holiday weekend. Um, and we hosted the funeral here. And as a pastor, I've been a part of a lot of funerals and been around death plenty. Um, and there's one thing for certain. When you, when you see a corpse, and it doesn't matter what stage, whether it's in the hospital or even if it's you know, in a casket, it doesn't matter how much makeup they have on, how well-dressed they are, how well-preserved the body is. You know, there's no life there. I mean, it just sort of almost screams it out that what was is no longer. And that this, this person, what, what, who they were, it's, it's in a sense gone. It's, it's empty. And that's what James is saying. That's what faith is apart from works. It's just like that. It's like a corpse. I mean, that's really what he says. Verse, verse 26, right? It says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. He's saying belief without action is fatal. And, and I know I've said this probably about a dozen times already, but I want to say it again. No amount of good works can possibly save you. Only faith in Jesus saves, period, nothing else, ever. But true faith always, 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 always comes with proof. So can you prove it? Well, what does that even mean? Thankfully, James doesn't just kind of like throw this at us and say, hey, good luck with that. 
Um, he helps explain what this sort of evidence looks like in our lives. And, and particularly back in chapter 1, when he was still kind of unpacking, giving the summary of what he was writing, he talks about three kinds of, of proof in our lives. If you have a Bible, you can flip back to chapter 1. Um, we're going to look at 22 through 27 just quickly here. Uh, but first, he says, if you want to prove it, if you want to demonstrate true saving faith, don't just hear, do. That's, that's in, in verse 22, right? Uh, you, you can't just hear the word. You've got to do it. You can't just hear a bunch of sermons, sing a bunch of songs, read your Bible when you feel like it, and then walk away with the assumption that you're the one who's right. That, that well, it's fine. This is what it says. But I'm, at the end of the day, I'm going to do my own thing, live my own, own way. James is saying that, that kind of faith is absolutely dead. It's not possible. James's big brother described it like building your house on the sand. It's just, it's just a bad idea. And Jesus, he also said that those who love me will obey me. End, end of story. And yet all of us fall short, don't we? Every one of us. And so my, my first question, you know, in this moment, just, just transparently, when I, when I hear this is, I just, I kind of want to know, like, what's enough, right? Well, how much... How much proof do I need? Uh, when am I good enough? I mean, really what I want to ask God, um, I wouldn't probably actually say this because it just sounds so terrible, but God, what's the minimum I have to do, right? Because what I really want deep down is I want to know the minimum, and I want to like, if this is the minimum, I want to come in like right, right there, you know, just barely, because I don't want to do anything extra, right? Uh, and I know many of us probably are wrestling with the same question. Well, how do I know when enough is, is enough? But just think about for a moment how terrible that question is to ask God or to ask of ourselves. I mean, think about it in, in a, a normal relationship, right, with, with your spouse or with a close friend to, to come to them and say, do I love you enough? Because anybody who asks that question is trying to get out of something, Right? You want to know, if I, well, have, I, have I slipped in? Is it is okay? Can I kind of lay off a little bit? And that's, that's not what works in relationship. I mean, the answer in any situation with your spouse or with a friend is no, you haven't loved them enough. You, you don't do enough. You're not good enough. And the same, the same is true here. And that's just the way it is with a relationship. You see, we'd much rather prefer Jesus as a, as a transaction than a person, wouldn't we? I do this. God does this. You know, bada bing. We all live happily ever after. But Jesus is a person. You know, we, 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 want to, we want a checklist, right? He wants a relationship. And anytime we try to trade a relationship for a checklist, that's what happens when we're asking, is it, is it enough? Have I done enough? Am I good enough? We just end up trying to trade, and a checklist didn't die for our sins. Of course you haven't done enough. What, are you crazy? You couldn't possibly do enough. I, there's no way I, I could measure up. But is there evidence in my life and yours that we belong to Jesus? I heard one pastor describe it like this. It's not the perfection of your life, but the direction of your life. It's a little cute, but it's memorable, right? It's not about, you know, somehow achieving perfection, right? If you want perfection, you're barking up the wrong tree. Uh, But the direction of your life, are you slowly maybe, but daily moving, maybe sometimes backwards, maybe sometimes with joy, maybe sometimes with pain and frustration, but is the direction of your life still headed yet towards this Savior Jesus, more and more like him? Are you merely a hearer of God's word, or are you a doer? I know, it's still kind of vague, right? Like, well, what does that even, what does that look like? Well, James gets more concrete. Um, He moves on and essentially says, don't just talk love. 
Don't just talk love. We're all great at talk, right? We love to talk. I like to talk. Some of you are tired of me talking, but we, we're good at talk. But, but how, are we, how are we at loving? Well, look at verse 27, chapter 1, verse 27. Because this is a shocking verse. This is James' definition of the Christian life. He's like, at the end of the day, guys, if you want to know what God is looking for, what, what, what he wants, it's this. That's what, that's what he's saying. Verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the, the kind of faith that God himself is looking for, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. One of the clearest evidences of true saving faith is an act of compassion for the most vulnerable. Isn't that amazing? That's what he points to. Especially when I think about the things that I'm passionate about, what I sort of summarize as, as my faith as being so important to me. James says, no, it's the care for the vulnerable. That's what it is. That's what God's looking for. And for, for them in that society, right, a patriarchal society, the most vulnerable were widows and orphans. Who are the most vulnerable today for us? I mean, widows, orphans, certainly on that list, but who else? The unborn, immigrants, the poorly educated, right? The, those, those who are enslaved or who are hungry, those, those who are marginalized because of race or religion. I mean, there's no, no shortage, is there? The kind of faith God is looking for is the same kind of faith that tangibly loves the hurting, that tangibly looks for ways to care for those who are less fortunate. One commentator, for example, he writes, James is about as pointed as any text can be. No matter one's profession of faith, if one is aware of acute human economic suffering in a position to help and consistently refuses to do anything, that profession of faith is vacuous. Put bluntly, that person is not saved. If you don't pursue justice for the vulnerable... That's not a passion of yours. At least a, a growing, right? A, even a seed of a passion to care for those who are hurting. If that doesn't describe you, chances are you don't know God. You've not met him yet. Because if there's one thing God loves, there's lots. It's the vulnerable. And friends, there is need all around us. No shortage. People desperate for the help that you and I can most likely very easily afford to give. And not just around the holidays when we kind of sort of feel like it. Do you want to prove that your faith isn't vacuous? Don't just talk. Love. If you want help with that, I mean, we'd love to find ways for you. We've got lots of ministry partners who serve in our city, serve locally, serve across our country and our world, who, who do just that. If you, if you want more information, talk to me or, or talk to someone to, to show you what that's like so that we can help you be aware and find a place to invest, to, to prove together, right, that our faith is genuine. But that's not all he says. I don't, I don't want to end there. Because um, in, in 27, right, he continues. Some of you noticed that. He says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. We talked about that. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. I think in many ways we're just as bad at this one. I am. I think what James is saying, don't just live, flourish. There's a better way to live. He says, keep yourself unstained from the world, unstained from the brokenness and sin all around us. 
And I think if James were here, right, and what he's doing in this letter, he's writing to these readers and everyone who's read this letter for the last 2,000 years, and for you and I here, he's saying, just, just take a look inside. Look at, look at the, the things that you value, what, what you daydream about, the, the, what you have built your life upon. Because those are the things that we love, right? Those are the things that we, we tend to, to worship. And if you look at those things, are they any different because you know Jesus? I mean, is, is your lifestyle, is, is it the same as everybody else's? Do you spend the same kind of money as other people in your income bracket, right? Have the same kind of house, same kind of car as, as anyone else who has that same kind of income? Or, or do you pursue your, the same kind of sexuality as everybody else? Do you, do you treat people you don't like the same as everybody else treats the people they don't like? Do I live for leisure or stuff or approval just as much as my unbelieving neighbors? Or maybe you're just as unforgiving impatient, proud, self-centered, and angry as everybody else. James says, wait a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. If you're to put your life next to theirs, the unbelieving people in our lives who, who we love and want to care for, this is not a self-righteous statement at all, but to look at them, and if, if there is no difference in the way they live our lives apart from Jesus and we live our lives with them, then, I mean, have we met him? He's the, he's, the, he's the God of the universe. He's the one who declares us whole and righteous, who gives us life, who calls us sons and daughters, who says we need nothing else but him, that there's nothing that we can live on but, but him. Not, that nothing else will give us our satisfaction or our security but him. If it's the same, James is saying, you've, you've missed it. You haven't met him yet. You're lost. You don't know Jesus. If you want to argue with James, let me just... Tell you what he'd say again, okay? He'd say, prove it. So you've met the God of the universe, the Savior of the world. Then prove it. What can you look at in your life right now and say, this I do because I'm no longer my own God, Jesus is. Or, or this I don't do, or I, I refuse to, to live like this simply, not because I don't want to, but simply because I'm not my Savior anymore. He is. What can, what can you point to? And if you can't point to anything, the faith you claim to possess, I don't, I don't care what prayer you think you prayed when you were a kid. I don't care how often you go to church or not. If, if there's nothing that you can point to in your life, the faith you claim to possess is ridiculous. It's incomplete. It's useless. And it's dead. And sermons like this really freak me out. I'm, I'm just going to tell you, be honest, okay? I, I, I don't like them. And it's not because I, I don't like standing up here and I know that like half of you, maybe more, like hate me right now and hate James even worse and, and all that. I, I can handle that because I think this book is worth doing that for. Uh, but what I, what I hate about it is, I mean, you think it's bad, right? You've been sitting here thinking about this for like the last half hour. This is all I've thought about all week. And when I look at my life, I know the holes. I, I know the areas in which I'm just, I'm lousy. Yeah, there are things that I can point to in my life, but for every one of those, there are stacks and stacks of things against me. And I feel my guilt. I feel my shame. I, I feel completely inadequate and insecure, right? As I stand before God thinking, me? Me? Do I? But thank God it's not about me. 
It's about him. And he abounds with grace. He offers us forgiveness and mercy, new and fresh every morning to every one of us. And, and, and if you're still sort of stuck in the ambiguity, I know some of us were just wired like that. You want, you want more concrete answers. You want to know that you can know that you can know that you can know, right? You want to you have it all sort of airtight. You don't like the ambiguity of not having a, a clear answer of whether or not you're good enough or you've done enough. And James isn't, he doesn't give us one. And that's okay. Get over it. All right? You're, you're, you're going to be okay. Because when we ask the question, am I good enough? I mean, just knock it off. No way. It's a terrible question. You're not good enough. You're not even close. Me neither. We'll never be good enough. You'll never love God enough. You'll never say no to enough sins and say yes to enough righteousness. Never. But Jesus was good enough for you. And God has proven himself to us. I mean, it's not just us, right? God has proven it. He's proven it on the cross, his, his love and his sacrifice on behalf of us, that, that he longs to welcome us in, and he has proven that, that his is the better way of life. And at the end of the day, it's, just, it's not about you and what you can do. It's about him and what he has done. It's about a trust so radical and a God so amazing that you just can't help but be changed in his presence. Our God came. The Christmas that Christmas morning, so many years ago, he entered this world in the weakest way as a, as a baby in poverty. And his life culminated to this humiliating death on a cross, the most brutal, most humiliating form of execution imaginable. In the glory of the resurrection, God came for you. And all you have to do is believe. That's it. Do you? Well, then prove it. Our world longs to see it. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful for your grace. Because I know when I look at my life, and for many of us, right, as we look at our lives in this moment, we know how far we fall short. We're not even in the same realm of your holiness and righteousness. And yet through Jesus, you, you call us to yourself, you accept us, you love us anyway, despite all of our inadequacies, all of our shame and guilt, our, our past mistakes, the baggage that we just can't even seem to let go of, you still, you, you accept us. We're your sons and daughters, Lord Jesus. Brothers with you. So God, I pray that you would grip us with that truth, that belief with, with such power through your Holy Spirit that we cannot help but be changed, that we cannot help but live differently as a result. God, I pray that you would help us know the steps we need to take, that you would continue to convict us while at the same time comforting us with your love and your grace. And so we pray this for the glory of your great son, Jesus.